Good evening, everybody. We wanted to talk about today the hidden history of Zionism. There's like a certain story about Zionism that we're told. We've all heard it before. Herzl, you know, late 1800s, Europe, all that, that whole story, Austria, France, the Dreyfus Affair, the Zionist Congress, and very quickly, because of the work of a bunch of European Jews, the state of Israel is formed. So that's like the classic story that we've all heard, but that's not the story at all. So we want to look at the real story of Zionism, the hidden story. So we want to explore where did Zionism actually come from? What does it mean? How did this begin? When, by who? That's the question. And to answer that question, we have to define, we have to set some definitions. Because what does Zionism actually mean? What is Zionism? How is it distinct from Judaism? What is the relationship between Zionism and Judaism? What is Zionism? How would you define it? If you could define Zionism, what would it be? Zionism. What perspective are you asking from? Any. In context of modern Zionism? Sure. Any Zionism. Because Zion is a biblical word that basically connects Am Israel, Torah Israel, and Eretz Israel. Maybe. So and how would you define the movement? Okay, but if you're, that's if you're definitely part of it. Of modern Zionism, yeah. then it's anti-God, anti-Jewish. <laughs> so that's why I asked the question. That's why I asked the question. That's exactly the reason. Because there's many kinds of Zionism out there. There's, there's labor Zionism, there's revisionist Zionism, there's religious Zionism, every kind that you can imagine. So what I want to talk about is not any particular kind of Zionism. I want to talk about generally the whole, the initial term, the, the beginning of this term, how was it first defined, not any specific type. And because, you know, the definition is really important because sometimes you'll hear people say, oh, I'm an anti-Zionist because, and list a whole bunch of things that labor Zionists did. So you're not an anti-Zionist, you're an anti-labor Zionist. And then other people will say, oh, I'm anti-Zionist because this, 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 a bunch of things that revisionist Zionists did. So you're not really anti-Zionist, you're anti-revisionist Zionist. You know, so it depends on your definition of Zionism that's going to determine everything else, your beliefs and understanding of this idea. So to properly understand the term Zionism, we have to go back to the person who first coined this term. Where did this term come from? Yeah, in the Tanakh, David Amir said Zionism? No, the actual term Zionism. Where did this term come from and when? Who coined, anybody know who coined the term Zionism? The word Zion appears for sure. Zion appears in the Tanakh. But who coined the term Zionism? This idea of Zionism? No. No. So it was in 18... This term was first used in 1890. And the person who coined it, his name was, was Nathan Birnbaum. Nathan Birnbaum was an Austrian Jew. He was studying at the University of Vienna. And of course, like most places at the time, there was a lot of anti-Semitism. Jewish students would get together, have like a Jewish club and try to protect each other. And he had a club that he was the leader of at the University of Vienna. He started a magazine called Self-Emancipation. And in that magazine, in 1890, he wrote an article where he first used the word, the term Zionism and Zionist. And his definition of Zionism was that it's not something new that Zionism is basically just the Jewish desire 
and drive to come back to their ancestral homeland, where they come from. So Zionism, by that definition, has always existed. Zionism is just an aspect of Judaism, because it's central to the Torah is the idea that the Jewish people belong in Israel. The whole purpose of the Torah, the Torah serves as a covenant. God is always saying over and over again in the Torah, when I bring you to my land, you will do all of these things. Kitavo, right? Like when you come into the land, you will do all these mitzvot. So the whole fulfilling God's law is kind of dependent on the land of Israel. And God is saying that if you fulfill my covenant, I will give you the land as a, as a gift, essentially. And that's part of the deal. We fulfill God's law. He gives us the land. So the whole Torah is based on this idea that the Jewish people belong strictly in Israel. We belong in the Holy Land. So it's a religious idea that we belong there. And then the Torah says that even when I get angry at you, God says, I will kick you out, but then I will bring you back. I will always take you back. I will never abandon you. You will be my people forever. Yes, sometimes I will punish you and I will exile you, but then I will make sure to bring you back. And that's happened throughout history where Jews are getting kicked out of the land and coming back in and so on. So this whole idea, Judaism is tied directly, the Jewish people and Judaism is tied directly to the land. And then it's a fundamental principle of our faith, one of the 13 principles of, of faith, that although we are in exile, we might be in exile now, eventually we will return. At some point in the future, the Jewish people will return and have an independent, prosperous Jewish kingdom in the Holy Land. That's one of the fundamental principles of belief, that Mashiach will come, we'll rebuild the temple, all of that. So no Jew denies that, because if a Jew denies that, then they're potentially a heretic. So it's fundamental to Judaism is this idea that we must return to our land. Our covenant with God is tied, is dependent on the land. So Nathan Birnbaum coined the term Zionism as simply as a reflection of this movement of the, the drive of Jews, that aspect of Judaism that is about returning to Zion, to the Holy Land, that Zionism. That's also, it's really just an aspect of Judaism. That's the court, right? Based on the Torah. So, and, and Nathan Birnbaum himself actually became very religious. Sometimes people call him the first Baal Tshuva, the first real modern Baal Tshuva, because he, he was born into a secular family, but actually became very deeply religious. A very fascinating figure, Nathan Birnbaum, because he was elected to be the first secretary general of the, at the first Zionist Congress. And yet, after that, he became, eventually, he left that whole thing, and he became the <laughs> secretary general of Agudas Yisroel, the you know, Ashkenazi head rabbinate that still exists today. So he became very deeply religious and he devoted the second half of his life to just Kiruv, to Jewish outreach and to reviving Yiddish, the Yiddish language. So he actually became, so he became very deeply religious. So in 1890, when he coined Zionism, he didn't mean secular Zionism or political Zionism. He, just, he was just talking about this Jewish aspect that always existed. Two years later, when it started to become political, he coined the term political Zionism. Different from the original Zionism. But in, that, the, the term political Zionism only emerged, he wrote about that two years later, because now it started to take on secular elements and become a, like a nationalistic movement. But when he first defined it, it was more of a religious idea. It was a whole mystical thing. And if we look throughout history, Jews always yearned to return to their land. And there were many cases of Jews actually fighting for the land and reestablishing somewhat an independent state or a semi-independent state, a semi-autonomous state in the land, going back at least to the Maccabees. Remember the Maccabees in the second century BCE, almost 2200, roughly 2200 years ago, 
already fought off the Greeks and established an independent Jewish kingdom and crowned themselves kings, the Maccabees, the Hashmonaim. They were kings. They had an independent state. That was, the, in some ways, the first Zionist movement. Uh, and this happened throughout Bar Kokhba, 300 years later, something like that, Bar Kokhba, in the 2nd century CE, same thing. The Bar Kokhba revolt, he fought off the Romans, and he was able to, actually, this was a big deal. Bar Kokhba was able to expel the Roman Empire from Israel. That was something really special. And it was so special that Rabbi Akiva said he's Mashiach. Because can you imagine today if, if the United States, you know, the most powerful military in the world, invades Israel and a bunch of religious Jews are able to kick out and defeat their military. It was such a big deal that uh, Rabbi Akiva believed Bar Kokhba was Mashiach to that extent. Unfortunately, he failed. Bar Kokhba cleared the Temple Mount. He actually started rebuilding the Temple. So a lot of people at the time thought that he's, he's going to be Mashiach, but it didn't work. But, but for a very short period of time, Bar Kokhba was able to establish a, an independent state in Israel in the second century C. The same thing happened 400 years later. There was another person named Nehemiah ben Hushiel. Very similar story. He started a rebellion against, at that time, the Byzantine Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire. Also got rid of them, kicked them out of the land, started rebuilding a Jewish kingdom, cleared the Temple Mount, started trying to rebuild the Temple, and got defeated. The rebellion got put down. But historians say that if it wasn't for him, this was in the year 614, Nehemiah ben Hushiel. So he defeated the Byzantine army in the region. And so what happened, what happened 20 years later? Yeah, 20 years later, the Muslims came in. And that's when the Muslims took over Israel in around 638. So a lot of historians say that if it wasn't for Nehemiah ben Hushiel, who already defeated the Byzantines and weakened them in this area, the, the Muslims wouldn't have been able to conquer. So he kind of set the scene. He let the Muslims come in very easily and conquer this land and then build, build the Dome of the Rock. So throughout history, you have Jewish groups that are fighting off whoever owns that piece of land at that moment and seeking to reestablish a, some kind of independent Jewish state. It doesn't last very long, but really all of these are essentially like Zionists in the broad definition of the term, that they're taking matters into their own hands and they're saying, we want to come back to our land and, and rebuild it and establish our own presence in the Holy Land. And the Hasidim did the same thing. In the 1700s, wave after wave of Hasidic Jews, Hasidic Rebbe's, wanted to go and reestablish an, a Jewish state uh, of some kind, or reestablish a Jewish presence in Israel. And they felt, based on Kabbalistic things, more mystical notions, that if we go there, we will usher in the redemption. We can't keep waiting for Mashiach. You know, centuries are passing and Mashiach's not coming. So we can't keep waiting passively. If we go there, we'll show God that we want this land and he will give it to us. That's the idea. We can usher in, we can instigate, we can ins- kind of inspire God, we can cause God to bring the redemption. And many groups would do this. The first was pro- in 1697. In 1697, Yehuda Siegel from Poland, Rabbi Yehuda Siegel, they called him Yehuda Hasid. Not to be confused with Yehuda Hasid and the in the Middle Ages, that was a different Yehuda Hasid. This is Rabbi Yehuda Siegel, he was from Poland. He managed, he had 31 families, his community in Poland, and he convinced everybody, we're leaving everything, we're going to Israel. And they started marching to Israel from Poland. Along the way, they picked up another thousand people that he inspired. 
Over a thousand people came to Israel in that in 1697. They came to Jerusalem. What did they find in Jerusalem in 1697? What do you think? Not much, but there was a Jewish community there. 1,200 Jews in 1697 in Jerusalem. 1,200 Jews. Who? What kind of Jews? A thousand Sephardis and 200 Ashkenazis. That's what they saw. They started building a synagogue. There was a synagogue today, you can go there. There was a synagogue of Rabbi Yehuda on the sea, a 2,000-year-old synagogue that was destroyed, not far from the Western Wall, if you go up the, up the steps. They started rebuilding it. So it was, it was called the, the Beth Knesset of Rabbi Yehuda, and then it got destroyed again. So it was called the Churva Synagogue, the Churva, which means the, the ruined, the ruined synagogue. And it kept getting rebuilt and destroyed until the present. And today it exists. Uh, if you go there, you can see it. It's actually the biggest dome in Jerusalem is not the Dome of the Rock. It's actually the Churva Synagogue Dome. It's a white dome in Jerusalem. If you look at an aerial view of Jerusalem, you see Al-Aqsa Mosque, you see the Dome of the Rock, you see some Christian domes. But the biggest dome in Jerusalem, it's right like at the top of the old city, is the Churva Synagogue. It's a beautiful, beautiful synagogue. If you're, if you're in Jerusalem, next time you go, make sure to come inside. It's one of the largest in the world. And it actually reopened. So it got destroyed, it got rebuilt, it got destroyed, it got rebuilt. The Jordanians destroyed it in 1948. During the first war, the Jordanians occupied Jerusalem and the whole Yudav Shamron, the whole West Bank. They destroyed the Churva. In 1967, Israel liberated the area started cleaning up the place, and it took a very long time to rebuild. They finally opened the doors in 2010, in March 2010. And for me personally, May 2010, I came to, to Israel, to Aish, to study at Aish Torah in Jerusalem, and they put me in a dorm outside, just outside the old city walls in the old diaspora yeshiva. So every morning I'd walk by and I would pray there. They just opened. It was like brand new. It was beautiful. So I would pray there every morning. It's amazing. So if, you ever, if you're ever in Jerusalem... You should go there, uh, the Chulva the Synagogue. So it's the biggest dome that there is. And so it was originally built, rebuilt, by the disciples of Rabbi Yehuda Siegel, Rabbi Yehuda Hasid, who arrived in 1697. Now, interesting story. The, imagine Jerusalem in 1697. It's very small. There's only a few thousand people living there. Half are Jews. You had a thousand Sephardis, 200 Ashkenazim. And now you have over a thousand Ashkenazim from Poland coming to Jerusalem. So the existing Jews that lived there said, you're welcome here, but we're poor. We have nothing. Like we can't, we need support, right? They were living in, in extreme poverty and persecution and they couldn't help them. And the newcomers from Poland were trying to like build things up. And they were getting permits from the Ottomans and doing all this construction work and taking loans. And it started causing all kinds of trouble. So eventually the Ottomans actually got fed up with them, kicked them out of Jerusalem and made a ban on Ashkenazim living in Jerusalem. So there was a, a, a period where only Sephardi Jews were allowed to live in Jerusalem. And if you were Ashkenazi, you couldn't live in Jerusalem. So they moved to Tzfat. The Ashkenazi moved north to Tzvat. Some of them tried to come back to Jerusalem by dressing up like Sephardis, you know, and getting a tan or whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there was actually a ban in the 1700s on Ashkenazim living in Jerusalem because the Ottomans said, you guys are causing too much trouble here, you know, trying to rebuild the, the, everything. And so that's what happened. 
Uh, the Baal Shem Tov also. The Baal Shem Tov, who's the founder of Hasidism, he tried to make Aliyah. He went with his son and daughter. They, went, they tried to go to, 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 to Israel, and he felt, the Baal Shem Tov felt like if he gets there, he's going to bring Mashiach. Like he'll be able to do what it takes to bring Mashiach. On the way, their ship actually capsized in the, at sea. The ship sa- and they all survived. It was a miracle. They managed to survive. And the Baal Shem Tov said, you know what? I don't think God wants me to go to Israel. You know, the world is not ready for Mashiach. He went back, went back to Europe and, and didn't make it. But his disciples did. So he had a number of disciples that did make it to Israel. Menachem Mendel of Viteps was, was, was one. He took 300 people and they made, made, managed to go. When they, guess what happened when they came to Israel? Menachem Mendel of Viteps took 300 Hasidim. They came to Israel. They go to Jerusalem. Guess what happens? Yeah, the Ottomans say, sorry, no Ashkenazim here. Right, so they went up to Tzfat and then they, stay, they started a community in Tzfat. And, and his, the Baal Shem Tov's uh, brother-in-law, Rabbi Gershon, also went and made Aliyah. So many Hasidim were making Aliyah. Also not Hasidim, the Mitnagdim that were opposed to Hasidim were making Aliyah. The Vilna Gaon, the Vilna Gaon was like the, 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 the paragon of Litvish Haredi Judaism, anti-Hasidic. And, but he also tried to make Aliyah. Same story as the Baal Shem Tov. He tried and he couldn't make it. Went back to, to Lithuania. He also felt that if he goes to Israel, he will be able to bring Mashiach. But he didn't make it. The disciples of the Vilna Gaon, the disciples of Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Shklov, did settle in Jerusalem. The day that they settled, guess what day it was, the date on the calendar when they settled in Jerusalem? This is one of the interesting, not maybe coincidences of history, but we don't believe in coincidence, but it was the 5th of Iyav. They came to Jerusalem on the 5th of Iyav, which later would be Israel's Independence Day, Yom Ha'atzmaut. And they started to rebuild that same Chuvah synagogue, which had been destroyed for the however, however manyth time. So Rabbi Yehuda Siegel's synagogue was destroyed by a band of Arabs, and the, the disciples of the Vilna Gaon started to rebuild it again. And eventually they were able to make it really nice. They got money from a few rich Jews like Moses Montefiore and others. And they were able to build the original dome, the beautiful white dome in Jerusalem. So all these groups, Hasidim, non-Hasidim, Sephardis, everybody, was coming to Israel always trying to reestablish some kind of Jewish presence in the land. And it was all, as you can see, it had very messianic connotations. It was all about, let's bring the redemption. Let's end the suffering of the Jews in exile. Let's come back to our land. Let's reclaim our heritage. Let's rebuild a proper Jewish kingdom. And that's why when Nathan Birnbaum coined the term Zionism, he dafka used Zion as a term. Why Zionism? Like he could have used some other word. Why Tzion? What is special about the term Tzion? Throughout the Tanakh, if you look at where the word Tzion is used, it usually has some kind of messianic quality. Something about the future, something about redemption, in most cases. Actually, the first time that it's mentioned, the first place that Zion appears. Anybody know where it appears for the first time? The f- no, there it's not mentioned, Zion. It appears, it's not in the Chumash itself. It's in, in Melachim, where King David, remember King David's first capital, King David was the king of Israel for 40 years. His first capital was Hebron. For the first seven years, his capital was Hebron. And then he conquered Jerusalem. And when he conquered it, it says he, he, 
he came up, he tried to go to Jerusalem, he couldn't, so he went the other way, and he had to take over this fortress, and it was called Metsudat Zion, the fortress of Zion. Zion means like a very excellent fortress. Like in Hebrew, a tziyun is your mark, right? Like on a test, you get a grade. So tziyun means like an, a, a grade, a very high grade. So he, it says, And he renamed that place the city of David. So when you go today to Jerusalem, there's like a whole city of David complex area and the Tower of David and all that. That's this area that was called the Fortress of Zion. So the first place that it's mentioned, it's mentioned in the context of King David, the, the forefather of Mashiach, Mashiach ben David. Mashiach is a descendant of King David. And King David was trying to take Jerusalem this, to make it the capital city, which he did, to make it the capital city of his unified Jewish kingdom. So right from the beginning, the, the mention of Tzion and Tanakh has very messianic connotations. It's all about the Davidic dynasty. It's all about the capital of a new Jewish kingdom, of a unified Jewish kingdom. Another place that it appears in Ishayahu, very famous prophecy that you all heard before, right at the beginning of Ishayahu, Isaiah chapter 2. And it starts by saying, And it will be in the end of days. What's going to happen in the end of days? That the, the mountain of God's house will finally be established. And it says, That all the nations of the world will come to Israel, to Jerusalem, to pilgrimage, as we know from other places in Tanakh, that in the end of days, the whole world will come to the final third temple, the rebuilt third temple in Jerusalem. All these nations will come and they will say, let's go and ride, climb up to God's mountain, to Jerusalem, to the house of Jacob, to the house of the God of Jacob, to the temple, to the rebuilt third temple. And we're going to learn from them. We're going to learn from Israel. Why? And this is a pasuk that you all say many times, all the times in our prayers. Ki mitzion Torah. Because from Zion, the Torah will emerge. Ki mitzion Torah, udvar Hashem Yerushalayim. And the word of God will spread from Jerusalem. So again, the word Zion has very messianic connotations. It's all about the end of days. In the end of days, the Jews will come back to Israel. They will rebuild their kingdom. They will rebuild the temple. And they will be a model nation to the whole world. And the whole world will come and pilgrimage to, to Israel, to Jerusalem. And the Torah will spread forth to the whole world. All the nations will follow God's law. So again, Zion is used in that context. By the way, the very next pasuk, what's the very next verse here? Very famous verse that appears in the United Nations. Right at the front of the United Nations. What is that verse? The Shafat ben Agoim, that God will judge all the nations. They will beat their swords into plowshares. And their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will no longer raise sword against nation. There will no longer be any war. So there will be world peace. So Ishayahu Isaiah says already almost 3,000 years ago, this will happen not now, in the end of days, far in the future, this is what's going to happen. There will be a day when there will be world peace. All the weapons will be destroyed. There will be no more war. There will be world peace. And that's in the context of Mitzion Torah. So the word Zion is, has very messianic connotations. 
It's all about the redemption. It's all about the end of days. It's all about the Davidic dynasty. So Nathan Birnbaum specifically wanted to use that word because the whole idea is that Jews are coming back to usher in their redemption. And when he saw that it was starting to become secular, the movement started to become secular, he left it. He said, I don't want nothing to do with political Zionism or secular Zionism. He said, because Zionism has to be religious. If it's not religious, there's no point to it. Because the whole, all of Zionism is based on the, on the Torah. It's all based on the idea that God gave us this land. If there's no God, then what's the point of Zionism? It doesn't work. You know, the, the document that supports that our claim is the Torah, which everybody, by the way, almost the whole world agrees on. Christians accept the Torah, right? They, have, they call it the Old Testament. So they are also Zionists because Christians do believe that God gave the land to the Jewish people. I mean, if it wasn't for that, there would be no Jesus, right? Jesus was a Jew who lived in Judea. So like, without, their whole religion would collapse without it. That's why one of the biggest groups that supports Israel today, perhaps the biggest, is evangelical Christians because they see it as their religious duty to support Israel. Christians also believe in the whole Zionist vision that Jews belong in the Holy Land. God gave the Jews this land. And so do Muslims, by the way. The Quran says that God gave the land to the Jewish people. The Quran says it clearly. I can read you the exact verse. If you... They conveniently ignore it. You know. It says... It starts by saying, O oh, people of the book, our messenger has indeed come to you, making things clear to you. Allah is most capable of everything. And remember when Moses said to his people, O oh, my people, remember Allah's favors upon you when he raised prophets from among you, made you sovereign, and gave you what he had never given anyone in the world. O oh, my people, enter the holy land which Allah has destined for you to enter. And do not turn back or else you will become losers. That's, surah, that's in the Quran, Surah chapter 5, verse 19. 519. Hmm? No, no. He's saying Moses said to the people, to the people of the book, not the Muslim. The people of the book is referring to other believers that are not Muslims. And he's saying that, Mo, that Moses, God, Allah took Moses and Moses said, this is quoting Moses. Moses said, oh, my people enter the holy land, which Allah destined for you. And so he's quoting Moses, telling the people that the holy land is yours. And this is great advice. Jews should take this advice from the Quran. The secular Jews in Israel, the politicians, do not turn back or else you will become losers. What do you find? Whenever Jews, whenever Israel's withdrawing land, giving up land, it's just a sign of weakness. And then the terrorists use that as an opportunity to take more land. When, when Israel is strong and assertive, nobody touches them. So when you start giving away, every time Israel gives up land, look what happens. Like all, every time they would, 2005 they withdrew from Gaza, just turned it into a big launching pad for rockets. Like every time there's a withdrawal, nothing good comes out of it. You know, they came out of Lebanon, again, that became a Hezbollah base. And now just every time, never works. So you have to be, you know, the Lubavitcher Rebbe was really big on this. The Lubavitcher Rebbe said, well, you should not give up ever a, 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 an inch of land. That's, you have to make it very clear and you have to be assertive. And the Quran, Lehavdil, says the so same thing. Right? Don't turn Quran back. Was, uh, to bring uh, yeah. to the country and give the West Bank. That was, so for those who don't know, in the 90s, during the Oslo peace process, that was a big debate between the Lubavitcher Rebbe and Rav Ovadia. Because Rav Ovadia Yosef said, let's give peace a chance. 
And he was also right. He came from it, to it from an emotional perspective. He said, like, I can't bear to see another young Israeli Jew get killed for this. Right? Like, it's not worth it. Lubavitcher said, yes, but when you're too soft, they take advantage of it. Right? That's the problem. So Ravavadya, and Ravavadya, I'm pretty sure, admitted that that was a mistake. If I remember correctly, he admitted that that was wrong to support Oslo. So the Lubavitcher was right. But, but the Lubavitcher didn't, it's too late. It's too late. And it's too late. Absolutely. I agree. They had to try. I guess they had to try once. And now we know that they, you know, there's no peace that can, there's no peace with people who have no interest in peace. They just use peace as a, you know, as a way to take a piece of Israel. That's all. So it's just, it's all a roost. Anyway. Christians and Muslims both agree, if they're honest, that the Jewish people belong in this land. And there are many Muslim scholars, by the way. You can like Google it and see videos on YouTube. I've seen many Muslim scholars saying, hey, the Quran says that this is their land. Why are we fighting over this like little sliver? There's anyway. So the, the, the honest Muslim scholars do admit this because they can't really deny it. But the whole thing is Zionism is meant to be a religious movement. And if you take the religion out of it, then it has no legs. It doesn't stand on anything. And that's why Nathan Birnbaum kind of left that whole thing. But he didn't become an anti-Zionist. He still encouraged Jewish settlement in Israel, but religious settlement, right? Proper, done properly, uh, the way God intended. So, and he called out what he, what he called modern paganism. He said that there's a trend. There's this new thing of modern day paganism. And today we see that that's exactly what's happened. If you look at what's happening in society, all the nonsense that secularism has brought, the immorality and the craziness. And so that's why he became a, like, a big Kiruv guy. He left the Zionist Congress and became the secretary general of Agudasi Israel, became very religious. And, but the idea is that you can't really, a Jew can't really be, if we take that original definition of Zionism, the broad definition of Zionism, a Jew can't be anti-Zionist. You can be like anti-secular Zionist maybe, you can be anti-pagan Zionist, but you can't be anti-Zionist. And so even when you see the very ultra-Orthodox Jews like Satmer, they're very anti-Zionist. Neturei Karta are very vocal against Israel. I'm not even going to talk about Neturei Karta because they're... It's one thing to oppose Zionism. It's a whole other story to march with terrorists and to support you know, Hamas and to shake hands with Ahmadinejad and all these people. That's already, that's crossing a line. So I'm not even going to talk about Naturei Karda because that's not even whatever. I don't even want to go there. But like something like Satmel, right? Like they're anti-Zionist. They're, they're, anti, they're not anti-Zionist in the sense, in the, in the Zionism that we're talking about. Exactly. They're, that's what I'm trying to say. They're exactly. political Zionism. Yes, so their, their opposition was to secular Zionism. They're like the type, like the Nathan Birnbaum type. Like under the religious definition of Zionist, sure, of course they also believe that Jews should be in Israel and have a Jewish kingdom and a temple and, and a proper religious, religious leadership. So, and they're also Hasidim. And remember, the early Hasidim tried to bring Mashiach. So that's something that maybe the philosophy has changed a little bit. Because today, a lot of these Hasidic groups are saying, well, we should just wait for Mashiach to come and sort all the problems. Whereas the early Hasidim, like we mentioned earlier, like the Menachem Mendels and those and the Baal Shem Tov, they felt like we can bring Mashiach. We shouldn't just wait. We should go there because, you know, waiting isn't helping. We shouldn't be passive about it. We should be as active as possible. And there's an interesting letter that we have. <clears throat> so Menachem Mendel of Viteps, he came in 1777. A year later, he sent one of his disciples back to Europe to raise money. And he 
this person, Rabbi Israel of Palotsk, he had a letter with him to share with the communities. And that letter that he actually wrote, it's a really interesting letter, that we, like they did this mitzvah to go to Israel, and now they're collecting funds. And he's saying, it is incumbent upon you and on us to build the house of Hashem. Like we came to Jerusalem, we came to Israel, we left everything behind in Europe to try and, you know, rebuild the temple and re- reestablish a Jewish kingdom here. And all Israel must be strengthened through settling the Holy Land. And we should all, we're trying to inspire everybody to come back to the Holy Land. May the souls of your poor brothers be precious in your eyes, the souls of leaders of Israel and the flock who expose their souls to death and abandon themselves to all sorts of mayhem. Awaken and be aroused to this great commandment, saying it's going to be a big mitzvah, to bring life to a large assembly of Jews, to feed them, give them drink, and clothe the naked, so that they may dwell in the Holy Land to arouse divine kindness, arouse divine mercy. Saying we came to Israel to inspire, to arouse God's mercy so that he will send us the geulah. And so it's a mitzvah for you to support us because we took this sacrifice to go to Israel. That's the letter that he came to Europe with to collect money. So their, their vision and philosophy was very clear. This was all about bringing about that perfect world that the Tanakh envisions, that in the end of days, we will come back to Israel, we will rebuild a perfect holy kingdom, it'll be a light unto the nations, there will be an international house of God that all peoples can pilgrimage to. That was the idea. So they're all trying to fulfill that original vision. And so Zionism is actually the perfect term for it because it's all about that concept of Zion, of resurrecting Zion, of bringing about all those prophecies about Zion, about Zion. So you can't, the idea is you can't really be an anti-Zionist Jew because Judaism is, Zionism is just an aspect of Judaism, that Jews belong in Israel. About 100 years ago, the biggest opponents of Zionism were Reformed Jews. Why? Why did Reformed Jew- Judaism oppose Zionism? What do Reformed Jews call their synagogue? Temples. A temple. Why, did, why that language? Why call them the temple? Christians call it a church. They don't call it a temple, though. So the idea was that Reformed Judaism gave up the whole idea of Geulah and Mashiach and Jews coming back to Israel. They gave up on it. They said, forget that. We don't need to go back to Israel. We don't need Mashiach. They removed all that stuff from the prayers, anything to do with the third temple. And they said, the synagogue is going to be our temple. That's it. That's why they call them Reformed temples. So because of that, Reform was not interested in Zionism. So we don't care to go back to Israel. So that's why about 100 years ago, Reform didn't care for Zionism much. Today, though, a lot of Reform, there is Reform Zionism. So they kind of became more pro-Israel, although... Many of them are also very anti-Israel still. So it depends on, on community. But it's important to mention that. Somewhat ironically, the two groups that opposed Zionism 100 years ago was the ultra-Orthodox and the Reform. Like the two sides of the religious world, for different reasons, opposed Zionism, for totally different reasons. Now, going back to where we started, the typical understanding is that Zionism began in Europe in the 1800s. It was like a secular Ashkenazi movement. And we want to turn that on its head right now because really it was more of a religious Sephardi movement, if anything. So it's the exact opposite. And if we actually go, we've already seen how groups were already coming in before the 1800s. In the 1700s and the 1600s, Jews were already returning to Israel. But when did this process really begin? When did the mass migration to Israel really start? Who were the first people to resurrect, revive these communities? 
like Hebron and Tzfat and Tveria and Jerusalem, before there were even Haredim. So it really started in 1492. What happened in 1492? The Spanish expulsion, right? In 1492, Spain kicked out all the Jews. So over 100,000 Jews had nowhere to go. And most of them went to the Ottoman Empire. The, the Sultan of the Ottomans took them in, Bayezid II. And he, there, reportedly, he even said that Ferdinand, King Ferdinand of Spain, is a fool because he's just throwing away all his gems and I'm picking them up easy. So most of the Jews that left Spain settled in the Ottoman Empire and a lot of them figured, hey, we're already moving, let's go back to Israel. Let's revive our land there. And so many of the Sephardi rabbis actually ended up in Tzfat, in Jerusalem, in Hebron. One of them was Yosef Saragossi. Yosef Saragossi was from Saragossa in Spain and he came to the Holy Land, he came to Tzfat when he came to Tzfat, he saw 300 Jews, very poor, no Bet Knesset, no yeshivas, no nothing. Like no Jewish infrastructure, no rabbi, nothing. So he said, okay, we're going to rebuild life here. He, he built three synagogues, he built a yeshiva, he built the whole infrastructure and transformed Tzfat into a place of learning. And within a hundred years, Tzfat became the capital of Jewish mysticism. That's where the Ramak was, the Arizal. So many of the Kabbalistic texts were written in Tzfat, Lechadodi, we sing Lechadodi every Friday before Shabbat. That was written in Tzfat, right, by Shlomo Alevi Alkabetz. There's all these like Sephardi Jews that came to Tzfat. Even the Shulchan Aruch, right? The Shulchan Aruch is the code of Jewish law. The code of Jewish law was written by Rav Yosef Karo, another Sephardi, in Tzfat. So very quickly, in, by the mid-1500s, Tzfat already became a center of Jewish learning. And Yosef Saragossi was very popular. He, he's the one that revived Tzfat, but he was also beloved by the Arabs. And the actual, the Arab governor paid most of his salary and actually wanted him to stay. When he said he's going to leave, he said, no, no, you stay. I'll give you whatever you want. Stay here. And Arabs would actually, Muslim Arabs would pilgrimage to his tomb also, to his grave, because he was seen as a miracle worker. He was respected by everybody. So that was Yosef Saragossi. Another one was Rav Yosef Taitazak, who settled in, not in Israel, in Salonika, which is today in Greece, Thessaloniki, the city. It was a big Jewish city back then. More than half the population was Jewish. Huge yeshiva. All these people actually originally studied there in Salonika before they came to Tzfat. Interestingly enough, Herzl, Theodore Herzl, he claimed, that's what he said, that he was descended from Rav Yosef Taitazak, who was one of the Sephardi exiles who was in Salonika, who had this big yeshiva, but he encouraged his students to go and settle in Israel. So the Ramak and Rav Shlomo Alkabetz and all these people, Rav Yosef Karl, they all spent time learning in Salonika first with Rav Yosef Taitazak before they came to Israel. So all these Sephardi exiles were coming and trying to reestablish the Holy Land. One particular individual, Don Joseph Nasi, very rich, banking family, Sephardi banking family, they left Spain, came to the Ottoman Empire eventually, were very, very wealthy. He actually got permission from the Ottoman Empire, from the Sultan, to build a Jewish state in Israel. In 1561, he got a charter to rebuild a Jewish state with the capital in, in Tveria, in Tiberias. And he was given the title Lord of Tiberias. The Sultan actually gave him an official title he was the Lord of Tiberias. They made an agreement in 1570. They made an agreement to bring all of Venice's Jews, to transport the Jews of Venice to Tveria. 
and, but then they went to war. The Ottomans and the Venetians went to war, and the plan dissolved. So all these Fardis, like Don Joseph Nasi, like, like Rav Yosef Saragossi, they were coming and already reviving Jewish life in the Holy Land. So that's really where it all started, long before you know, the, the secular movement, the secular European movement in the 1800s. Same thing with Hebron, same thing if you look at the history of all these places, those four in particular, Tzfat, Tveria, Hebron, and Jerusalem, that's where Jews would always go to. Why are those four cities so special? Well, Hebron is obvious. So Hebron is all over the place in the Torah. We're going to read in this week's Parsha, next week's Parsha. That's where the, the patriarchs are buried. Avram, Sarah, right? Yitzhak, Rivka. The, all the patriarchs are buried in Hebron. It's a very important city. So much of the Torah's stories happen in Hebron. <coughs> Jerusalem is the main location for everything in Nach. Mentioned over 600 times in the Tanakh outside of Chumash. Very important. Why is Tveria important? What Tveria is Tiberius. It's named after the Roman emperor Tiberius. So it was a Roman city, but it was rebuilt on a, on a, a biblical city called Rakat. It's mentioned in Tanakh. But Tveria, what, what was important about Tveria? So the Talmud Yerushalmi was written there. A lot of the Midrashim were written there. Very important place. A lot of big rabbis are buried there, like the Rambam, a lot of tombs in that place. So Tveria is a holy city. Hebron Tzfat is a center of Kabbalah. Tzfat is mentioned in Tanakh. It's a very ancient city. It's the highest city in Israel. Tzfat is up in the air, up on the mountain. So you have four. Those are called the four holy cities of Judaism. All right? You know this? Tzfat, Tveria, Hebron, and Yerushalayim are the four holy cities of Judaism. And Kabbalistically, they actually correspond to, you know, when, when you, whenever you see four, they always correspond to, there's patterns. They correspond to the four letters of God's name, yud Hey vav Hey. They always correspond to the four elements. They correspond to the four universes Kabbalistically. And you can see that very neatly with the, with the four cities. Just really quickly, if you think about even just something like the four elements, earth, fire, water, air. So each one of them, if you notice, Tzfat is up in the mountains. It's up in the air. It's the highest elevation in Israel. Very mystical. Right? That's where Kabbalah is. You know, air, the air quality is a very mystical. A mystical person has a lot of air. Air is very creative, very mystical, floating, you know, up, merachef, up in the sky. So Tzfat is air. Tveria is water. It's on the coast. It's on the Galilee. And Hebron uh, is earth. That's where everybody's buried. All the patriarchs are buried. That has to do with the earth, with the land of Israel. That's where Abraham made his first purchase of the holy land. It's very much associated with land. And Jerusalem is fire. It's the fire of the temple. It's the Eshtamid, the fire that was burning always on the altar, the eternal flame. So each of the four cities corresponds to one of the four primordial elements and to the four universes, Kabbalistically, for those who know, Asiyah, Yetzirah, Briah, Atzilut, of course, Jerusalem is on, on the highest level of the universe. And they correspond to different aspects of Jewish wisdom. Because Hebron is all about Chumash. The whole Chumash story is Hebron. And Jerusalem is all Nach. And Tveria is all Talmud Midrash. That's where the ayat was composed. And Tzfat is Kabbalah. Tzfat is the place of mysticism and always was. So you can see how the four holy cities, there's so much more to it than just the surface history. Each one really corresponds to something deeply spiritual. So to recap, Zionism, you can't really separate it from Judaism. All right. It's... 
It's the fundamental Jewish belief that we belong in the land and that eventually we will have to at some point reestablish a Jewish kingdom there with the capital in Jerusalem. And secular Zionism is an issue because it's basically just a nationalistic movement and it doesn't really have any legs to stand on, so it's a problem. But religious Zionism is the authentic Zionism that everybody agrees on, including Christians and Muslims. Right? Once you have that religious foundation, everybody's on the same page. Now, by this time, when that secular Zionism began, there were already Jewish communities in those four holy cities. Everywhere else, there wasn't much happening. Uh, I always like to quote Mark Twain. We all know Mark Twain. He took a trip, uh, he took a global trip around the world, and he made a stop in the Holy Land. And this is what he wrote. He wrote a book after, The Innocents Abroad. He wrote about his travels, a diary of his travels around the world. It's called The Innocents Abroad. And this is how he describes the Holy Land. So he says, I quote, There's not a solitary village throughout its whole extent, not for 30 miles in either direction. There's nothing. For 30 miles in either direction, not one village. There are two or three small clusters of Bedouin tents, but not a single permanent habitation. One may ride 10 miles and not see 10 human beings. A desolation is here that not even imagination can grace with the pomp of life and action. We never saw a human being on the whole route. Of all the lands that are for dismal scenery, I think Palestine must be the prince. The hills are barren. The valleys are unsightly deserts, fringed with a feeble vegetation that has an expression about it of being sorrowful and despondent. The Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee sleep in the midst of a vast stretch, wherein the eye rests upon no pleasant tint. It is a hopeless, dreary, heartbroken land. Palestine sits in sackcloth and ashes. That's what he said. And he's not Jewish, right? Mark Twain's not a Jew. But Mark Twain is visiting. He's saying there's nothing going on here. Nobody's here. And around that time, there were Europeans that came to Jerusalem. In 1844, a Prussian consul came there, Ernest Gustav Schultz. He took a census of Jerusalem. This is what he found. Who lives in Jerusalem? 7,210 Jews in 1844. 7,210 Jews, 5,000 Muslims, 3,390 Christians. So Jews were the clear majority. So for those today who like to argue, his name is Ernst Gustav Schultz. He was a Prussian consul. And another, we have lots of statistics. Two years later, a Swiss explorer, Titus Tobler, also took a census. Very similar numbers. 7,500 Jews, 6,100 Muslims, 3,500 Christians. So Jews were always the majority in these inhabited few settlements. And the rest of the place, like Mark Twain is saying, it's desert. Nothing going on here. Which is why when Israel was established, Israel's planted, it's the only country that's had a, a net increase in trees. They've planted something like 300 million trees in Israel over the last hundred years. Because it used to be a desert. And now they were able to make the deserts bloom. How many bloom. people were in the land when, when we went in? What, do you, what, what in 1948? Yeah. 600,000. There were 600,000. <clears throat> The, the population of Jews in 1948 was 600,000. Jews before we got the land? What do you mean before? Like when? Like when, we... when Israel was, the state of Israel's independence was declared, there was about 600,000 Jews in Israel in 1948. Which is interesting in and of itself because there's a book called Kol Hator, which is supposed to be a secret book that was only published 
maybe 70 years ago for the first time, 80 years ago, but it's the teachings of the Vilna Gaon that were passed down to Menachem Mendel of Shklof and Rabbi Hillel of Shklof, their descendants that came to Israel. And over there, it says that we will be able to bring about a Jewish kingdom, a Jewish state in Israel. How many people do we need to settle in Israel to make it happen? The Vilna Gaon said 600,000. Why did he say that? Why did he say that? Where does that number come from? Yeah, because there were 600,000 Jews, that, Jewish men specifically, that came out of Egypt, uh, fighting age men, and that stood at Mount Sinai. And in Jewish law, throughout like Talmud, if you look halachically, that number 600,000 is an halachic number. Like it plays a role in various halachic issues, like when to make certain blessings and things like that. If you're in a place where there's 600,000 Jews, that changes the the nature of that place. So the Vilna Gaon, it's written in Kolato, that when Israel will have 600,000 Jews, that's when we'll be able to bring about the redemption. So it's amazing that in 1948, there was 600,000 Jews in Israel. Something unbelievable that it happened exactly like it was foreseen. So all these, uh, today you hear all these people, various anti-Israel people saying, oh, this was always a, you know, an Arab state. There was never an Arab state anywhere here, right? It was the Ottoman Empire, and then it was the British Empire. There was never such a, a state, and nothing was going on over there. And the reason that all these Arabs even came to Israel is because Jews were coming and making opportunities for them. Right. Once Jews came en masse in the 1800s, 1700s, 1800s, and started rebuilding, then the Arabs started coming because they heard, oh, there's opportunity over there. There's Jews draining swamps and planting forests and farms and agricultural colonies and kibbutzim. So the Arabs were coming in. And if you look at their last names, Palestinian last names, you can look at their origins of their families. So I looked it up. I, I looked this up on their websites. The third most common Palestinian last name today. The third most common Palestinian last name, Al-Masri. Right? Masri means Mitzri, the Egyptian. So just from their last names, you can see where they came from. Al-Fayumi, Fayum is also in like All their last names... Many of their lives. And they admit it. There's a very famous Hamasnik. You guys all should need to see this video. He's screaming at all the Arabs saying, why don't you guys, guys support us? We are you. He says, half of the Palestinians are Egyptian and half are Syrian. And like, why don't you help us? We're the same people as you. It's interesting now. Everybody is pressuring Israel. Give them water. Give them electricity. Why do we have to give them water and electricity? They're killing us. They're launching rockets. Where's Egypt? Why doesn't Egypt give them humanitarian aid? They also have a border with Egypt. You know? Now... Just to finish off, how did this whole really en masse Zionist movement start? It didn't start with Herzl. He deserves credit because he was able to really organize it politically. He turned it into a nationalistic movement and kind of accelerated the process. But who really started it? In 1827, Moses Montefiore, who I mentioned before, Moses Montefiore was this very rich Sephardi, British banker, financier, politician, We've mentioned him before. He was a really big deal. He was knighted by the queen at the time. So he was Sir Moses Montefiore. He was involved with the British government. I, I told this joke before, but it's, it's a very famous joke where there was that, you know, the government, the British government assembly, and one of the politicians said in his speech, he said, I just came back from Japan, and it's a wonderful country. There's no Jews there and no pigs there. Just came back from Japan, amazing place, no Jews, no pigs. So Moses Montefiore got up and said, that's wonderful. Next time we'll go there together so they'll have one of each. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
That's what he said. So <laughs> that was uh, Montefiore's uh, response. So he came in 1827. He came to Israel. Actually, also became a Baal Shuva. Became very religious. Who was this? Moses Montefiore. Moses Montefiore became very religious. He was inspired by his visit to Israel. After that, he was fully became like an, a religious Jew. Every time he would travel, he brought with him a shochet to make sure he would have kosher meat. Everywhere he went, he brought a minyan with him, said he had everything. He was a multi-billionaire, one of the richest uh, people in England at the time, and lived a very long life. He lived like 100 years, something like that. Like a very amazing story, amazing life. So when he came there, like Mark Twain, he said, this place is empty. Like Jews are looking for a place to live peacefully. This is the place. Let's come back to our land. So he started investing crazy amounts of money to rebuild Israel. He started building synagogues, schools. He rebuilt Rachel's tomb. That, that, the Chuva synagogue, like I mentioned earlier, he gave money for that. Every, everything. He built some of the first agricultural colonies, some of the like pre-Kibbutzim colonies. He started to really build this up and telling other people about this. And he met, in 1839, he met a rabbi, Yehuda Bibas, who was a Sephardi rabbi in Greece, and who also had the same ideas, who was encouraging Jews to make Aliyah. And Moses Montefiore actually sponsored him to go around the world and to tell people, tell Jews, to inspire them to go to Israel. And that Montefiore would help to fund them and help give them the funds that they need to go and settle in Israel. And then on, during this tour, Rabbi Yehuda Bibas met another rabbi, also Sephardi rabbi, in Serbia. His name was Rabbi Yehuda Alkali. Rabbi Yehuda Alkali. He also had similar ideas. He said, Jews are not happy anywhere in the world. Like they're, they're not letting us live happily. Right? They're always attacking us. The Muslims, the Christians, they're not letting us live peacefully. It's time to go back to Israel. At the same time, this is 1840. In 1840, in Damascus, anybody know what happened in 1840 in Damascus? A Christian priest and his Arab Muslim servant disappeared. Nobody knows what happened to them. And the governor of the land and one of the European ambassadors there accused the Jews of the classic blood libel, that the Jews took them and killed them and took their blood to make matzah, all that nonsense garbage. And probably it was done because it was, as always, money. The Jewish merchants were very successful. Somebody didn't like that. And... Whatever, accused a group of Jews, maybe 13 Jews or something like that, of doing this. So they got arrested. Some of them got, died under torture. They were torturing them to confess. And all these things were happening. And it, internationally, it set off a, a huge you know, protest campaign. You know, Western countries were saying, like, do we still have this kind of craziness? And, you know, it's 1840 in the 19th century. This is like something out of the Middle Ages. And when Rabbi Uda Alkali heard about this whole story, he said, you know, that's it. Like, we can't. We can't live in any other places anymore. It's not safe for a Jew anywhere. It's time to go back to Israel. And he was a big Kabbalist, Rabbi Yudha Alkali. The year was 1840. What does the Zohar say about the year 1840? The Zohar has a prophecy. Remember, the Zohar is the teachings of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Shimon Bar Yochai lived almost 2,000 years ago. And the, the Zohar was first published in the 13th century. So it's been around for a very long time. What does it say? The, the Zohar has a very famous prophecy. It says, In the 600th year of the 6th millennium. So in the Jewish year 5600. 
in the Jewish year 5600, what's going to happen? It's patchun tare de chokhmata le'ela. The gates of wisdom above will open. Umevoye de chokhmata letata, and the fountains of wisdom below will open. Ve'itaken alma le'ala b'shiva, and the world will get ready for the seventh millennium, for the end of days, for the messianic age, for the redemption. That's when the world's going to start getting ready. Why? Kebarnash de mitaken be'yomashtita. Just like a person prepares on Friday for Shabbat. So just like a human being needs to start preparing Friday early, leave work early, start getting ready for Shabbat, so too the world in the year 5600, in the Jewish year 5600, the world will start getting ready for Mashiach. That's what he's saying. Vesimanach, how do you know? What's, where is this coming from? From last week's Parsha, from Bereshit, from Noach, because it says with Noach, Beshnat Sheshmeot Shana Lechayei Noach, in the 600th year of Noach's life, the gates opened, right? The gates of heaven opened, Arubot HaShamayim, Nifkeu Kol Ma'ayinot Tahom, that the, the fountains of the deep and the gates of heaven opened to flood the world. So the Zohar says, just like with Noach back then, in the 600th year, the gates opened and the world was flooded, in the year 5600, in the 600th year of the final millennium, before Shabbat, in the sixth millennium, the gates of wisdom will open. The world will start to develop very, very quickly. Wisdom will fill the world. And look what happened technologically. This is the start of the Industrial Revolution. Very quickly, the world changed. In the last 200 years, the world changed more than in the last 2,000 years. All the technology, all this wisdom, everything from 1840, from 5600, which is 1840. Okay, 5600, it's 5784 now. So 5600 is 184 years ago. It's 1840. The year 1840, the Zohar says, will be the year when the world will start to develop very, very quickly and transform very quickly to prepare for the Messianic age. So Rav Yehuda Alkali saw this and said, now is the time, this is the century for Jews to go back to Israel. Because the Zohar says that this is when we're getting ready for Mashiach to come. So he says, now is the chance. So he wrote a book. He established an organization called Society for the Settlement of Israel, started working towards sending Jews to Israel, wrote a book called Goral Le'ashem. He published it in 1857, and he made a step-by-step manual. This is how we're going to do it. We're going to buy land from the Ottomans step-by-step. We're going to set up agricultural colonies, become farmers, become independent, build up the whole infrastructure, change our language to Hebrew. Because that's what unifies us. If I'm Sephardi and there's an Ashkenazi, my brother in Poland, well, how are we going to communicate? He speaks Yiddish, I speak Ladino, whatever. He speaks Bukhari, he speaks something, everybody speaks their own language. So what's the one language that unifies us all? We have to be speaking Hebrew. So he said we have to, until then, Hebrew was a holy language. It was the language of prayer, of Torah. He says we have to make Hebrew our spoken language so that we can all get along and understand each other. He wrote all these things. And he said, eventually, we'll also get political recognition and become an actual state. He wrote this book. He published it in 1857. Guess who he gave one of the first copies to? To one of his friends, somebody who went to his shul, to his synagogue in Serbia, in Semlin, Serbia. And that person's name was Shimon Leib Herzl. Shimon Leib Herzl is Theodore Herzl's grandfather. And Theodore Herzl went to shul with his grandfather. He didn't like it. He became secular. <laughs> but he went with his grandfather. So now historians and scholars say that his father had a copy of the book from Rav Alkali. And that's where Herzl first saw these ideas. 
that's where he got it from. So a lot of things that people credit Herzl with, whatever it is, reviving the language, the agricultural concepts, that wasn't, those weren't his ideas. He also wrote them in his books, but it's based on books like Goal Le'ashem of Rav Yehuda Alkali, who was a Sephardi chief rabbi of Semlin, Serbia. And he actually predicted, Rav Alkali, he said, we have 100 years to do this. He said, look at what's happening in Damascus. Look at what's happening all over the world. He says, it's now or never. If we don't do this, the world will kill us. They're, they're going to exterminate us. There's not, not going to be anything left. And he wrote that in, he said that in 1840. So just think about what happened 100 years later, right, in 1940. So another very uh, amazing prediction. He's saying, look at where things are heading. Right? It's just getting worse. These blood libels are not going away. They're saying they're civilized. They're not civilized. The hatred is just getting worse. Give it 100 years, they're going to exterminate all of us. So this is really the person who many will credit, Rav Yehuda Alkali, was really the founder of modern Zionism as we know it, who really wrote the first manual of this is how we're going to do it step by step, who gave the model for the whole process. Now, he was right that within 100 years, basically Israel, just about 100 years after he wrote his book, after he published his book, Israel already existed as a state. It wasn't the state that he wanted because it became secular. And like we said, Zionism is supposed to be a religious movement to revive the proper spiritual kingdom of Hashem. But it's step one of the process. And that was also prophesized. And we're heading towards it. Like Israel is moving to closer and closer to what it's supposed to be. You know, 70 years ago, it was very communistic, very secular. And now over the last 70 years, it's gone rightward. There's more religious people today in Israel than ever before. So it's heading in the right direction. And then it's getting better and it's an improvement. And Israel is supposed to be a model nation. What all these people said, Birnbaum, Alkali, Herzl, what they all said was that Israel needs to be, like Ishayahu said, La'or goim, a light unto the nations. It has to be a model nation. That's its purpose. We have to show the world, you know, what is a proper kingdom. And Israel has done that when it comes to technology, medicine. We know how advanced Israel is and how many things. You know, Israel per capita wins so many Nobel Prizes and it's one of the most educated places in the world. So it is heading in the right direction and becoming better and better. And we're almost there. We're almost in that we're, this is the final stage of that process, and we can see it, Yechezkel, in his prophecy, and, and we'll end with this, is really telling us that this is what's going to happen, that Israel will be established first, and it'll be, it'll be a, a gradual change. It'll take time to make it the type of kingdom that we want, and he says like this, in chapter 38, and we'll finish with this, in the whole vision of Gogu Magog, the war at the end of days, this is how he describes it. He says, So he's saying about Gog, who's this like evil person at the end of days, who's planning this war against Israel. Again, he's saying, In the end of the years, in the end of days, You're going to come to a land that was restored from destruction. A people that is coming back from many other nations. That the Jewish people will come back to Israel from many nations. They're going to come back to their mountains, to Israel. That were always empty. This land was empty. As we saw Mark Twain say, and as we saw all these people, as, like, as Moses Montefiore saw. So the Jewish people will return from Cherev, from destruction elsewhere. They're going to come back from many nations to Israel, to a land that has always stood empty. 
And all the Jews will finally be able to build a prosperous state in Israel. That they're going to sit securely in Israel. They're going to finally have their own land. And then he goes on to say that these wicked people, whoever they are, they're going to come lishlol shalal ve'lavoz baz. They're going to come to spoil us, to attack us, to seize, to steal our things. Le'ashiv yadcha al charavot noshavot ve'el am meusaf migoim. You're going to attack a people that was meusaf migoim. You're going against the people that was brought from many nations, a very multicultural place, like we know Israel is. Osem mikneve kinyan, which is very successful, that's doing a lot of business, as Israel is. You're going to attack these people. And God tells Yechezkel, the prophet, So tell Gog, tell these wicked people, So you will know, on the day when my people are living in Israel, When Israel, when my nation is back in Israel, that's when you know this will happen. So make sure, this is in the Tanakh. In Yechezkel. How do we know when these things, when these events will happen? When the Jewish people return to their land from destruction, from many nations, and rebuild this prosperous state that's involved in business and is sitting securely. That's when all this will happen. And then God goes on to say, I'm going to defeat all those wicked people that are always after you, all those people that harmed you, all those ungrateful people, all those villains that massacre you. I will destroy them. And the passage ends. God says, I will do great miracles. You will see incredible miracles that you haven't seen since Egypt. And all those evil people will perish. And the people who want to destroy Israel will be no more. And the, the passage ends, the final verse. This is actually a verse that's where Kaddish comes from. The Kaddish, the first line of Kaddish comes from this verse. He finishes by saying, Ve'it gadalti, ve'it kadashti. God is saying, I will be my, my greatness will be manifest. Ve'it and my holiness, ve'nodati, and everybody will know. I will make known, le'enei goim rabim, to all the nations of the world, ve'adu ki ani Hashem. And all the nations of the world then will know that I am God, finally. So we'll end with that. May we merit to see that day soon. Thank you very much.